This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. Their systems of law and knowledge long predated that of the modern lawyers who arrived in Australia, and they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and the hopes of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Welcome to Unraveled, the DWL podcast. Diverse Women in Law is a not-for-profit organisation based in Sydney. Our aim is to empower and support diverse women in all stages of their legal studies and career. We aim to provide meaningful structural enablers and awareness-raising initiatives to overcome barriers faced by diverse women in the legal sector. Welcome back to episode three of the Unraveled podcast by DWL. I'm joined by my co-host Kushal. Welcome to episode three. Thanks, Lovely Fosia. to have you. Very excited. And today we have two who is our guest speaker today. So very excited to have you on board too in this episode. A bit of background on two. She is a community worker and lawyer who is passionate and a dynamic advocate for the social, political and cultural needs of the local community. She is currently a solicitor for the Domestic Violence Response Pilot Program at the Western Sydney Community Legal Centre, as well as a community development manager at the Marrickville Legal Centre. And to top it all off, she is also a co-founder of YCLAP, which is a youth advocacy and organisation focusing on promoting social change. A lot of things on the list too. It's incredible to see your achievements so far. Tell us a little bit about your journey um, into the law and what attracted you to working in community legal centres. Thanks, Fozia and Kush, uh, for having me. I'm very excited to chat to you today. So I guess I never really uh, looked at being a lawyer as a career option. It was more when I was deciding on what to study, um, what I really wanted to gain more knowledge of. And I guess the utility of the law and the fact that it touches in a a lot of aspects, a lot of industries encroaches on all aspects of life, I think was the main thing that attracted me. So when I graduated, I didn't go straight into the law. I did a two-year business grad program. And then towards the end of that, I didn't see myself there long-term. I've shared this story a few times, but the first time, the first day in that grad role, and you know, you're a (laughs) fresh-faced grad, you're really excited for your first (laughs) full-time paying job. And we were marched, the grads and I were marched in front of the um, board and, you know, massive board table in a very pretty office and sitting around, they were all middle-aged white men and there was one woman and I was like, at least there's one woman (laughs) on the board. Um, But it turned out she was one of the EAs, one of the assistants. So that was my real first taste into, um, you know, corporate Australia and seeing how homogenous it was. Um, but it wasn't until the end of that um, business grad experience, which was fantastic. And I um, got a job in corporate law, in immigration, uh, and did that for a while and saw my senior managers. And the job was fine. It was very comfortable. It was great. Um, but just thought I could not be in that <laughs> position in five years time. I actually took a bit of a detour and worked for um, my local MP for a little while. And the last thing I did was manage the election campaign for the last, well, the 2019 federal election. And then after that, I moved back into the CLC sector. 
Um, so it took, you know, it wasn't a, a linear career progression. Mm-hmm. Um, I took some detours and I think that's okay. And I'm really thankful for the um, really broad experience I've had. And I really think that that's led me to where I am today, working in the community legal sector. That's fantastic. Sure. No, I was just wondering, um, you know, when, when you talk about commercial law and then your experience in the CLC sector and, you know, that first inkling that you had where you walk into this sort of boardroom and, you know, there's not a lot of people that look like you. Have you seen a similar story, a different story or one that can be improved on in the CLC sector? Is it something that's exclusively commercial or are there instances where it needs to be improved across the board? No, I think it's a um, an issue that we see quite commonly across the board, regardless of the industries. I think some industries are better at addressing the issue of, uh, I guess, lack of diversity, particularly in that uh, leadership level, decision making level. Um, but it's something you you see, um, you know, across the board. I don't think it's exclusive to the corporate sector. I would say actually, the corporate sector is probably doing better, um, particularly in some industries over others, and they make a point of. You know, ensuring that there is diversity within their leadership um, and, you know, diversity inclusion is the uh, hot topic of the day and everyone talks about it, um, which is great. Um, but I think, you know, we, we are still at the stage where it is a lot of talk, but in terms of actual policies and what companies um, and industries are doing about addressing the lack of diversity in the leadership ranks is, is another story in itself. Because I, I guess I wanted to delve a bit more into into that topic because there's, there's, there is some talk about the fact that in some instances, and of course, there's a lot to do to improve even in the commercial sector, but I have heard on a you know, couple of different platforms that the commercial sector is often doing better than a lot of other industries. Um, and perhaps that's something that might concern a lot of different people in some respects, uh, particularly you know, compared to the CLC sector or other community sectors where you are often representing the community. I'm guessing. I'm. I'm. I guess I'm just trying to wonder whether there are moves that are happening in the CLC or community sector to try and improve that, particularly to you know counterbalance what's often called you know white savior complex or uh, communities that aren't being represented by the people that they're supposed to be helping. I completely understand where you're coming from regarding you know. Um, having people, not necessarily with lived experiences, but at least with um, the empathy and the understanding of the the clients and the communities that we're assisting. And that's absolutely critical um, in the work that we do. I wanted to also bring up a few stats that we looked into as well. Um, So the 2021 census data showed that Australia continues to become more culturally diverse. Um, 48.2% of um, half of us really have at least one parent born overseas. Um, 24.8% speak a language other than English at home. So it goes back to your point as well, how CLCs are becoming um, quite big in these culturally diverse areas and the need for these resources to be out there in communities. I know um, as I'm based in Western Sydney, I was curious to understand how has working in a CLC enriched your understanding of some of the cultural barriers that um, linguistically diverse um, individuals face today when accessing justice? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the the most obvious one is language, but um, in terms of addressing the needs, it's much more than just simply translating um, information or, or even advice. Uh, when I started Back in the CLC sector, I actually uh, worked on a 
um, program called the Migrant Employment Legal Service. So we knew like this statistically, um, and there was a survey done a couple of years back where, um, you know, nine out of 10 temporary visa holders, migrant workers suffered from wage theft in silence. Um, and so I think a big part of that is not only language, but also to uh, understanding a very complicated legal system that I think even people who are born here or have lived here for decades, um, find it difficult to navigate, um, but also to understanding that, you know, the law here is not only complicated, but it's quite foreign and different to how um, the laws work in people's home country. So coming here and, and navigating that and also just in terms of settling into a new country, like that's difficult enough to navigate the systems and then understanding the law, particularly where you've been, you know, exploited or need the assistance of the law to, to help you, um, you know, remedy a wrong, um, particularly where there's been, you know, unlaw something unlawful done to you, particularly in uh, the employment space where we know that migrant workers, even young people are, are highly exploited and disadvantaged and people take advantage of that. Even the most basic thing I used to hear all the time is, you know, I'm going to get my visa cancelled by my employer if I dare to speak out about being underpaid um, or being treated unfairly or unlawfully in the workplace. Uh, but your employer can't cancel your visa. That's, you know, the Department of Home Affairs, but people aren't aware of that. Uh, and that's just something that you hear time and time again. So you know, that, that lack of access, that lack of knowledge and understanding, and also not necessarily accessing mainstream services. And a lot of that comes from, you know, distrust of um, certain services, uh, thinking that they'll be reported, or actually just, as I mentioned, the importance of trust and building relationships. You know, oftentimes you trust your employer and there might be people that uh, you've been uh, introduced to from within your networks or families and communities. So there are, there are a lot of barriers that I think are quite new ones within communities as well and aren't necessarily um, W widely known about and uh, because of that yeah I think it causes a lot of issues and so we we hear often about you know exploited migrant workers just as an example of one group who's being disadvantaged by the system. We can definitely empathise with that in the sense that we're in our work at Western Sydney University we're launching a bit of CLA stuff for migrant communities who have experienced a lot of that and it's something that we see quite often as well. But I guess what I wanted to touch on as well was that um, what's nice about, you know, everyone in the studio here today is that I think we've all got some strong connections to Western Sydney. You know, Fozia just said, you know, <laughs> fellow Westie to yourself working with Western Sydney for a long time and myself growing up, born and brought up uh, and still living in Western Sydney as well. So, I mean, obviously it's a special part of the communities that we're, we're all from. I guess one observation that I've had when I've been studying law and also in practice now as well is that I'd say, I'm, I'm not sure if you'd agree, but there aren't a lot of lawyers in leadership positions who are from our areas, who often, you know, that's the sort of where the multicultural hub is as well as we know. In your work in the CLC space, given that we don't have as many lawyers from the community in that sense, how is that gap being filled and why is that gap really important to fill? Well, I mean, I'm I'm a, a lawyer from Western <laughs> Sydney, so there are, you know, a few of us out there, uh, probably not enough. And, you know, you spoke about, you know, white saviour complex, and I think it's a, a sentiment that you really feel, and, and I think we all share experience where a lot of people, you know, try to come and you know, we want to provide more opportunities for Western Sydney, want to empower, particularly young people in Western Sydney, and it's very much a, like an imposed thing um, as opposed to actually, 
you know, I think like, you know, we talk about how important language is and people are empowering communities and young people, but I think it's really important to recognise that, you know, we have agency. It's not necessarily about actually coming in and helping or saving anyone. It's about how we actually have that uh, access to resources and we know that there's inequality of opportunities and that's what leads to you know, people de- being more disadvantaged than others. And, you know, the reality is that life is a little harder for you if you're not well, male or if you're not white. Um, and that's just, you know, the reality that we grow up with and we know that, you know, we people experience social and economic disadvantage for many of reasons, including, you know, where they, they live um, and their, their cultural background. And so within the sector, I I don't see it actually being addressed like widely. I don't think people go into Western Sydney and seek out uh, <laughs> young potential lawyers. Um, there's no real like policy or agenda around that. Um, I think it's just uh, a matter of, oh, we try to attract the right people. But I think it's the same thing with, you know, very white people boards where they say we can't find you know diverse people we can't find women we can't find um people of color to be on the boards i think the issue is that you know you're kind of fishing in the same pond so you're not really casting your net wide enough one of the things that i've noticed as well particularly in western sydney is that not only are there more opportunities for these resources to be you know spread out and you know thankful that they are So my question is, do you think that we should prioritise resources such as the inclusion of more interpreters and workshops designed to educate individuals on legal processes? Or do you think, or maybe and, um, this should already be an obligation for legal practitioners to take their clients through these processes and make sure that they understand what's going on? Yeah, I mean, we, we spoke extensively about the inaccessibility of the law. Um, and I think part of that and the part of the work that we do in the community legal sector requires a bit of both. And I think it's really like understanding and empathizing and l- really listening to your client and your client's needs, particularly in a sector like the community legal sector where, um, our clients are, are often faced with greater disadvantage. It's really understanding, you know, where they're at and not necessarily I mean, some clients need more hand-holding, but others, you know, as long as they're given their information, their legal options, they can go away and do things for themselves. So it's really understanding, you know, each individual client's needs. But a big part of that and, you know, what I really focus on um, in my work is in terms of community legal education. It's just breaking down the law because a lot of it is just complicated um, and, you know, they're not going to read through acts. But if you break it down, if you simplify it, then people can understand what's relevant to them um, and then know I think the biggest thing is even to know where to get um, help from and I think the the common trope is that you know lawyers are really expensive and they want to uh, you know squeeze every penny out of you which may be <laughs> the case uh, for some but I, I think knowing that there are other service providers out there particularly and I always stress this to clients and I go out in the community it's free yeah. and it's confidential <laughs> like we're not going to talk to the department you're not going to get in trouble and a lot of times they think they're in trouble and I think part of it too is getting um, you know incorrect information from people who are 
aren't necessarily lawyers, but people they trust in the community mm. who might Google things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Google is, is <laughs> and not the not the right answer for medical or legal or advice. Legal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, you know, people turn to that, and then, yeah. and yeah, they they might not have the best advice from mm-hmm. doctor or you know lawyer <laughs> Google. Um, but I think it's really important, at least, to understand what services are out there mm-hmm. to be able to assist. So, too, we've spoken today about how we've got uh, a lot of great diverse lawyers, including yourself, but not necessarily always in leadership positions. And so, it is also really important that we have fantastic allies to be able to push that cause forward. But there is this balance that's really important to make sure that we aren't going into a white saviour complex that has been criticised in scholarship before as well. So, my question is, you know, working in this space, what constitutes a good leader in this space and what does good allyship actually look like to make sure that you aren't prioritising your own voice but really helping to amplify those other voices? I think the the issue is um, more universal and not necessarily limited to the community legal sector. Mm. Um, I would say in terms of allyship and, and in my personal experience too, I mean, obviously mentorship is really important and if you're in that um, you know, position of power, uh, you have, I would say, an obligation, a responsibility to not only lead your team but recognise uh, potential in your your team, um, particularly emerging leaders, and be able to support that, not necessarily through just mentorship. I mean, people can be mentored to death and never really be supported to go into these leadership positions, um, but also as sponsors too. So a lot of times I think it's recognising, you know, when you need to take the step back and create space for other emerging leaders to really you know, have their voice at the table as well. And in, in my personal experience, and, and I often share in politics particularly if it wasn't for you know a, a, a white male who stepped aside and really you know helped propel me and put me in the position that I was in I probably wouldn't even consider a career mm-hmm. in politics because mm-hmm. I just would think that you know that's there's no space for me um you know in that in that world um so I think that that's incredibly important and so you know we talk about allyship but how can you be a, an accomplice in terms of really propelling people and making sure that you you leave a legacy behind in terms of ensuring and I think we talk about this a lot with women where mm-hmm. a lot of women had um you know had faced so many barriers to getting to where they are um, that oftentimes I hear that they're probably, you know, the leaders that aren't as supportive um, and aren't great allies for other young, diverse, particularly diverse women. Um, But I think, you know, there is, as mentioned, in terms of the obligation, um, it's up to those types of leaders to make sure that just because they've jumped through hoops to get to where they are, that they actually leave the door open behind them to make sure that others who um, may have similar experiences to them and face similar barriers um, aren't facing the mm-hmm. exact same barriers and, and challenges that they are and they make it easier for those that follow in their footsteps. I love that, uh, you know, to move on from just mentorship but sponsorship and being mm-hmm. an accomplice. I think that's a, that's a really it's important... It's flipping the switch a bit. Yeah. So- I mean, now too, 
you know, anyone, and we were talking about Google, anyone that, you know, will have, will have, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be Googling your name, all the wonderful work that you're doing. But if they don't already know, you know, you bravely put up your hand to be a member for Fowler as well in the, in the recent election. Uh, and that had its own uh, questions that were raised about diversity. And, you know, for those uh, that are listening that don't know the background about that is that in the Fowler seat, uh, ultimately, Christina Keneally was the Labor candidate for that seat uh, and ultimately lost out to Dai Lee, who was a local candidate and a local independent candidate. In that context, uh, too, and you know your, your involvement in local politics and community politics as well, after the recent election, one, do you see that there's more diversity and do you have sort of optimism about what it means for diverse candidates in uh, Australia's parliament? But also, secondly, what to those naysayers who might not actually see the value of diversity in Australia's parliament, what is the value proposition for a diverse parliament? Um, well, in terms of our our parliament, um, we're a representative democracy, uh, and so you know you'd you'd want your parliament to be able to reflect reflect your society and your communities, and we are an increasingly diverse Australian nation. Politics is challenging um, and there's only few, like there's 151 members of parliament um, and you know, my experience, and to clarify, uh, it wasn't going to be um, a sure thing for me. Like I would, putting my hand up for pre-selection mm-hmm. for the Labor Party, I would still have to go through the election process and would have gone through a pre-selection process as well. Um, but what's unfortunate is, and I think what resonated uh, maybe with a lot of people is the fact that it's a common experience for um, uh, women, women of colour, even uh, young women of colour to be uh, overlooked, um, to be underestimated. And I think that that's probably why uh, it, like my experience had resonated. And I mean, obviously pers- for me personally, the, the outcome you know, wasn't what I had expected or wanted, um, but I've really sort of seen that missed opportunity as a really great personal learning experience mm-hmm. um, of the last 12 months has been ridiculous. Um, but also too, I think it's really sparked a national conversation around the issue of diversity, particularly lack of diversity within parliament. And I think that that's you know, a really important conversation to have. And we now see the most diverse parliament we've ever had. We you know we have a first Vietnamese Australian woman. We have um, a first, you know, Hijabi wearing senator, and I think that, and you know, even the foreign minister coming out and speaking Pahasa, yeah, yeah. like what that symbolizes for a nation like ours, it's increasingly diverse and multicultural. Uh, I think it's amazing, and people see that. You know, we often throw around the line, you know, you can't be what you can't see, but now that we're seeing mm-hmm. more and more diverse leaders, particularly in our House of Representatives and in Parliament, I think it's a very empowering and inspiring thing where people can say, oh, that's an opportunity that um, I can aspire to. And it's not limited to middle-aged white men making decisions about this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's really important that we do have diverse voices sure. um, and people from with diverse lived experiences because these people are making decisions about our lives. And yeah. how can they understand our lives if they're not part of our communities, if they're not, if they don't have, they don't necessarily have to have this exactly the same lived experience as us, but mm-hmm. to actually understand and empathize with our experiences as 
uh, diverse migrants um, to this country, I think it, it's, it improves the decision-making process. And so our policies and our laws in this country actually um, improve the lives of the people and it's just better for society as a whole people in parliament just speaking their language, like finally we can see that happening. Um, And it's so exciting. Hopefully more of it to come. One of the last few questions that we had as well, um, how can we create better pathways for diverse women to be brought through the pipeline to run for public office? And what more can political parties do in this regard? Uh, well, I think the first thing is to not be afraid to put your hand up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think oftentimes people feel that, uh, you know, it's not the right, right pathway for them or it's too difficult. Um, you know, po- a lot of people have turned off politics for good reason as well. Um, you know, I've definitely experienced that in the last 12 months. Um, but it's personally for me, it's actually strengthened my resolve. But there's so much more that can be done within our institutions, within our political parties. I mean, I'm a Labour Member. Um, there's, you know, that, no hiding that. But um, <laughs> News I, <flash>. and I'm <laughs> still a Labor Party member. But I, I'm really proud of the fact that they have an affirmative action mm-hmm. agenda and that there is progress towards, you know, fifty fifty in terms of gender diversity. Um, I really believe that we need to go a step further in terms of cultural diversity within the party. And you know, in the last twelve months, I've been doing a lot of work within the party. We have a diversity group. Um, and the first thing, and we spoke about how important you know data is and me- measuring things because what you measure gets done um, in in terms of just even capturing the diversity within the party um, and within the ranks of the parties from members to staffers within um, the political party. And then also um, it's been running for a couple of weeks now, but having a diversity fellowship where you're actually training and providing that pathway for young aspirational future political leaders to actually have access to, you know, the networks, the resources and the knowledge uh, because so much of it and, you know, I, I hate saying this but sometimes it's true in terms of, you know, it's it's about, it's as much about who you know as much as what you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the yeah, saying? That's a good point. Um, but, uh, like, I, it's unfair sometimes um, but I think, like, we know how important networking is and having those relationships and building those relationships. So the Diversity Fellowship, um, it's the first time that it's running in New South Wales and hopefully it's an ongoing thing and something that can be replicated. I think they've already done it in Victoria, but replicated across the state so that there's that increased opportunity for young people of colour who would not have had that opportunity to uh, understand the inner workings of a political system or political party um, to engage So I think that there's some progress, but there's so much more that needs to be done as well. Well, there's a couple of things to, I think, jump onto there as well from what you've unpacked, because I think a lot of those sort of initiatives that you're talking about perhaps also explain why, whilst we have seen some improvement in this election in terms of diversity, like we were talking about earlier, it's interesting that, you know, in the UK, you still have even the most conservative parties having and boasting more cultural diversity than, mm. you know, Australia's most progressive. Um, you see that in the UK, you see that in the US, you're seeing that in New Zealand, you're seeing that in Canada, but we're not seeing it here. And I think that a big part of that and, you know, not being able to be what you can't see plays a big role because there is that sort of confidence gap. But really good points. And then this goes back to, you know, really encouraging law students that there is a career greater um 
for a purpose, you know, to make an impact on the community. And obviously, the solutions to unfairness, um, it'll focus on individual cases, but obviously it's not to suggest that we're doing this all isolated. We're doing this together as a community and really ensuring that we have a justice system that is fair. Um, We have legal practitioners and everyone really to be more culturally diverse and aware. So really good points that you raised with us too today. I appreciate that. I mean, if if we do have time, do have one more question that I'd love to get your thoughts on only because... Um, I remember when the whole Fowler situation happened, um, there was a lot of commentary that I'm sure, you know, you you would have, you, you were part of, but also, you know, the subject of. And one of the topics that was raised was, I think, some comments that Paul Keating made, our uh, former prime minister made, about how uh, some diverse candidates, including yourself, some diverse candidates aren't experienced enough uh, to be running for parliament. And I guess... You know, I think there's there's an obvious counterpoint to that to sort of just say that, well, we're never given the experience in the first place to be mm-hmm. able to have that voice in Parliament. But I'm just wondering, I guess, from a more personal perspective, that the last 12 months have obviously been a whirlwind in that sense. How, how have you been able to, you know, deal with that? Uh, what are your responses to those sorts of comments and how do you stay so resilient? Well, I think those comments were made with a particular agenda. Um, so I, I don't hold that personally and I think in in politics like if you start taking things too personally <laughs> you probably won't last very long um but you know I, I think there is I mean on upon reflection some merit in in terms of that comment in terms of you know okay we want to sit at the table we want to be heard we want to be able to use our own voices to advocate for um you know our own communities but even then if you have a seat at the table like what are you going to do and what are you going to say mm-hmm. and that's really critical as well so I, I think that the last 12 months I mean in terms of um being resilient to I me, mean, even to this day, and you know, I'm quite open about my experiences. But um, and because you know, you mentioned Fowler and the interest in Fowler, uh, I'm recently within my local um, community, like in terms of the outcomes, and you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you must feel so vindicated by the results. I don't, for one, because I think it's a huge loss mm-hmm. on both ends um, for the party. Speaking mm-hmm. as a, a Labor Party member, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think too, I, it's um, more so that the the outcomes need to be a real wake up call for all political parties to know that you know you can't take communities for granted um you know we do have a strong say in terms of our representatives so just because you know this has been the voting pattern in the past doesn't necessarily mean that that's how people are going to vote so mm-hmm. i think people are much more informed with their vote now um and so you know there's no such thing as a, a safe seat anymore so just resting on your laurels and thinking that it's a sure thing. I think it's dangerous and that may have been what occurred there. Um, But um, I'm experiencing a lot of um, backlash now in terms of, not now, but in the last 12 months about actually speaking out about it. And so the expectation was for me to be quiet, to go away quietly because that's what people do. Um, And, you know, a lot of people have told me you've jeopardised any future um, prospects you have of getting into politics. 
Um, but, oh, you know, I think that I would not have changed the thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think I really stuck to my values and what I believed in. Um, and I think, you know, if I can't advocate and speak up for myself, how would I expect to advocate and speak up for others within my mm-hmm. community as a representative? So I don't regret it at all, but I'm definitely experience, continuing to experience the backlash where um, you know, I've been blamed by some people for the outcome as well. Which I personally think is is unfair, but <laughs> I mean, rather than kind of learning from the lessons of the outcomes and what eventuated, which personally I think it's a big win for the community to actually have their voice heard. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that any political party is going to make that mistake again, uh, which is a great thing for our communities in general. Um, but I, I think rather than sort of learning the lessons from that and then seeing how we can move on and rebuild um, and, you know, consider what's going to be in our best interest in terms of actual success. There are unfortunately people who are trying to, you know, make sure that I know that I will never have a career in politics um, and want to expel me from the party. And I think that that's really telling of just how challenging it really is and what you're up against. So um, I wouldn't, you know, sugarcoat it anyway because mm-hmm. it is really tough. Um, but I think if you, like I've mentioned, it's actually strengthened my resolve to continue to fight against it. So um, I think like in terms of resilience, sometimes you have no choice, but I feel like if you kind of back down, then you kind of let other people win. And so, um, you know, that's something that I don't necessarily want to to do in terms of you know backing down um, and staying quiet. So I feel like I've had no choice, and I wouldn't regret anything that I've said or done. I've mm-hmm. really just didn't have a chance really to reflect whilst it was happening um, until more recently in the last couple of months. But the first couple of months, and even when it all had unraveled, it was just. Like I found out from the media, for example, mm-hmm. so it just all hit me at once and I really didn't even think about my future career prospects. It was just, this is what I believe in and this is what I'm going to um, say on behalf of my community because I know this is what the, all the community sentiment and what the community thinks and feels and I think the outcome speaks for itself. I do like the way that you used unraveled. Um, in, <laughs> oh, in yes, yeah, that yeah, was very, in my very mind on as brand, well. Very on brand. <laughs> Intentional. Really good points too. And I think um, it goes back to how, um, you know, not only Western Sydney, but in general, the legal profession is changing to bring these issues to light, um, to have um, diverse women and diverse men advocating for these issues as well. Um, And I think many of our DWL members will walk away um, not only feeling a bit more educated in terms of this aspect, but also more motivated to pursuing a career in advocacy in politics, um, pursuing a career beyond the boundaries of, you know, um, helping communities and helping not only their community, but themselves, their, their children, their children's children. So it goes on. So thank you so much for joining us in episode three. I could definitely go on for ages. So Absolutely. I'll get emotional behind the scenes instead, I think. Nice, <laughs> nice.